0: Hey, welcome to day 11 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 24, and then Psalm 8, and Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 through 38. Now, one may be wondering, uh, why just one chapter of Genesis? We've been, like we had three chapters yesterday, and, uh, well, you've probably read it by now. Um, Genesis 24 is actually the longest single episode in all of the book of Genesis. Um, and it's a little weird, right? because you would think that some of the events that we associate more with Abraham would get the most uh, get the most ink, right So maybe the almost sacrifice of Isaac, maybe the Abrahamic covenant. But no, when it comes to a story that the reader that the writer really wants to tell in detail, it's actually the story of uh, Abraham's servant finding Rebecca as a wife for Isaac, and um, I've I've always kind of puzzled about why that is. I think if I if you know if I if I had to give give my best answer as to why so much attention is paid to this one thing, it is because of the generational aspect of the covenant. And that if, uh, if this doesn't happen, then, then, uh, then that's not going to happen. The covenant will not be handed down. Isaac needs a wife and he needs a wife from the extended family of Abraham. Uh, this is very important. And so, uh, in terms of the, the this generational aspect of the covenant, the idea that to your offspring I'll give this land, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and uh, all of this stuff that we especially saw come into focus in chapter 17, I think those are the reasons why so much attention is given to this. Um, so, yeah, so Abraham is old, and he's advanced in years. Sarah has passed on, as we saw yesterday and he he calls his servant and the servant is called the oldest of his household who is in charge of everything and um, it may be that this is Eliezer who is mentioned by name in chapter 15 but that's not entirely clear it doesn't um uh, it doesn't specifically name this servant though some though many certainly have have thought this uh, like if Eliezer was supposed to be his heir before he knew uh, that the lord was going to provide him with a son well then uh, it would make sense that he still occupies this prime position in Abraham's household. And he has him put his hand under his thigh. Uh, now, this is an interesting thing that happens. Um, We also see this with Jacob on his deathbed, where um, in chapter 47, verse 29, where he has Joseph do that to him uh, in order to swear, like, put your hand under my thigh and make me swear, and, and swear, right, um, uh, to me that you're going to do this, um, this thing that I'm asking you. And uh, the significance of that is actually kind of interesting. Um, it's not the most frequent thing in the world, but certainly in, in Genesis and uh, and then in the beginning of Exodus, the thigh uh, of the man is used as a euphemism for uh, the male reproductive uh, stuff. Okay, um, if, for example, uh, the the way that we really see this is um, in chapter forty six, verse twenty six, and then again in Exodus chapter one, verse five, Jacob's descendants, the people who are who go to Egypt, are referred to as those who came out of his thigh. Um, this. Also, interestingly, impacts the um, is going to impact our interpretation of Jacob's wrestling with God when we get there in chapter thirty-two. You might recall there that it is his thigh that is that is put out of socket. Um, so um, I, I do think that he literally was grabbing his thigh rather than anything else. This is I know probably the weirdest thing I've talked about so far. Um, I, I don't think there's a reason to think that. Um, anything more intimate was going on there, um, but uh, uh, the 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 symbolism is is that. So you're essentially, I'm sending you to care for my offspring, and I want you to swear by my offspring, by who I am. And and even without the covenant, this is a significant thing in the life of um, an ancient Near Eastern man, right? That this is uh, that that my posterity counts, my my descendants count. Uh, this of course is why genealogies which we often find so boring are are all over the old testament and and it's a uh, very concerned with that so um the the servant then agrees to go and do do this thing Now what does he have to do? He has to go uh back up to Mesopotamia uh this would be like north of Syria um uh to the cut to the city where his uh, where his family had stayed when Abraham was called to go to God from uh, with, called by God to go to Canaan. And uh, he's to obtain a wife for Isaac from one of Abraham's kinsmen. And he specifically says, do not take a, a wife for my son from the Canaanites, even if, uh, you know, I'm, I'm telling you God' God will send his angel before you, but even if, You're somehow not able to do this. Still, don't do that. Okay, you'll you'll be discharged from your duties. But he is not under any circumstances to marry a Canaanite woman. Now, what's going on with this? Well, I think um, it 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 does not seem to be a disdain for the Canaanites. At at this point in the story, there's no hint that the Canaanites are these. are, are are people that Abraham has any animosity towards? He's he's bumping shoulders with the people of the land all over the place, and um, he doesn't. It doesn't seem to be that there's there's anything negative about them. Although it is also uh, important not to forget that in the context of Genesis, uh, probably relevant to this is the fact that uh, if you recall back in chapter nine. Um, Noah had cursed Canaan as a result of his his son's uh, his his son Ham's action uh, actions, and uh, so so that might have something to do with it. I I don't want to discount it, but in the story of Abraham, I think the the most obvious answer, in my opinion, is the idea that um, Abraham is supremely committed to God's covenant, and I think what you have here is a similar thing to what you saw back in chapter 14, which we also just saw in chapter 23, where Abraham does not want his offspring to end up in possession of the land at all as a result of uh, Canaanites giving it to him, to, to them. He wants, um, he does not want blessing accrued through, um, the people living in the land. He wants it to be very clear that God is the one who is blessing, and that God is the one who will give his offspring the land. And so, were Isaac to marry into the Canaanites, to start to intermarry with the Canaanites, and that kind of um, that kind of precedent was set, right? And they give uh, their daughters to our sons, and we give our sons to their daughters, and that and, and vice versa, and these kinds of things. Um, eventually, it would not be God giving them the land, it would be marriage contracts giving them the land. And I think Abraham is trying to avoid that. So, the servant goes, and he takes uh, 10 camels, and um, as a little bit of a side note, it's significant that camels are part of this. Now, um, uh, and that's because at the time at which this is happening, which is the early second millennium B.C. So this is roughly two thousand years before Christ. Uh, camels were not widely domesticated. There are not a lot of camel remains in archaeology and things like that, and and in and in art from this time period. It, it appears to have happened, um, you know, in the coming centuries, uh, as opposed to when Abraham was. However, there is some evidence. It's not totally lacking. Um, there there is domesticated cam- ca- there were domesticated camels at this time. But they seem to have been a rarity, um, kind of like so. So him bringing camels with him is like showing up in a uh, Mercedes Benz or showing up in a really nice Tesla or something like that. Right. Like that. This is this is a it shows that 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 there is wealth here. OK, so he goes he and he gets to to Mesopotamia or as. Uh, it is, it's is—it's literally called in the text Aram Nacharaim, which is Aram of the two rivers, <laughs> okay? But we call this Mesopotamia between the Tigris and the Euphrates. To the city of Nahor, and Nahor is the, the name of uh, the person, okay? Abraham's brother, uh, not uh, the name of the city. The si- name of the city, you might recall, is Haran. So he arrives there, and... Um, what hap- What happens then? Uh, there's there's two things. So first of all, um, he asks for essentially a sign from God. He says, um, "I all right, God. Here's what we're going to do. Please show me steadfast. Please show my master Abraham steadfast love. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stand by this spring of water, and when one of the young ladies comes out, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask uh, her, uh, please let down your jar that I may drink, and if she says sure and uh let me water your camels also uh then then that will I will take that as the sign that this is the one okay because it's uh it's it's quite a task to water camels they can drink quite a bit and he's got 10 of them so this would be taken as a sign so that's one thing that's going on and and the way that the text overemphasizes god confirming this is of is something worth noting the other thing to take into, mo- into consideration is that what we have here is uh, what is called a type scene. So we've actually already seen a type scene. Uh, a type scene is a-, a recurring scene that happens more than once where elements are the same and they're kind of tweaked differently to bring out certain aspects of meaning. Okay, so... Uh, what we have already seen in this is the wife sister episode. Okay, so say say you are my sister it happened in Egypt, and then it happened with uh, Abimelech, and now here we have this type scene of an important uh, Israelite figure meeting his future wife at a well, and um, the and there is uh, animals will have to be be watered. And then that, ha- when that happens, uh, the, the, the meeting takes place. The women hur- the woman hurries home and tells her family. And, uh, and that's how that initial, uh, contact happens. And every time that it happens, it's tweaked a little bit. So this happens here with Rebecca. It's going to happen with Jacob when he meets Rachel and then it will happen with Moses when he meets his wife in the book of Exodus. And it's also very tempting to say that even the, the which I think is a very good reason to think is a historically true, okay, uh, I think all, I don't think any of this means that none of this happened. It just means it's being tol- told in an artful way. Um, you could tell the story of anyone's life in ways that include irony and all kinds of literary uh, in literarily interesting things. I don't think uh, artistry means that it didn't happen, but um, what's, uh, so so yeah, so, so everything's kind of tweaked here, but as I said, I, I think it's interesting to maybe think that the story in John chapter 4 of Jesus meeting the woman at the well, it does have some of these similar elements, the drawing of water, the woman running back to the town, um, and how these things are are tweaked, are, uh, is significant. So here, note that it's not the patriarch itself, himself. It's not Isaac. And Isaac, throughout the narratives of Genesis, is a very passive character. He's a character who doesn't really do much, but he has a lot done to him, okay? So just recall, like, what have we seen him do so far? Well, we've seen him as an adolescent boy laying down on a pile of wood and getting ready to let his father kill him. Uh, probably an act of piety, yes, but still, he's a very passive character in that. Um, uh, then we will see him, uh, you know, lying on his be- deathbed as his son is taking advantage of him, right? And and just uh, and even and even in his disputes over wells, kind of just getting pushed all over the place. It's not to say he's a bad guy or anything, but this is just how he's characterized. Things happen to him. And so here, in in line with his passive character, it is not he who goes, but it is the servant who goes. And he meets Rebecca. and uh, Not Rebecca. Yes, Rebecca. And Rebecca comes out, and note that it says, before he finished speaking, before he even finished his prayer, she shows up. And uh, he... She's attractive. She, uh, No man had known her, the narrative tells us. So. so, so, so far she's checking all the boxes and he does this thing. He says, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she says, drink, my lord. And it's kind of like, what was he going to say? Is she going to say the rest of it, right? She quickly let down her jar. Notice how much quickness is going on here. She's rushing. She's very active. Again, characterization. Rebecca will be a very active woman throughout the, the stories of Genesis that she's in. And she quickly let down her jar of water and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, notice how it's delaying whether it's going to fulfill. She says, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she's not just going to give them a sip she's gonna fully water 10 thirsty camels who have just traveled hundreds of miles and she quickly empties her jar into the truss she runs up and down the well again right the, you just imagine like this woman just hauling all this water up to feed these camels and it's like wow she is just this industrial you know l- bolt of lightning that uh industrious bolt of lightning i mean and um yeah, and so um, he's very impressed by this, and so he busts out some of the gifts. He puts a, he gives her um, a gold ring, and he gives her uh, uh, two bracelets, and um, uh, and and uh, and he says, you know, who are you? And it just so happens she is again, Lord Prospering the, do- the journey. She is the son of uh, the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. So she is related to Abraham, and um, and so the the um, the servant who is displayed as this really godly guy, probably like the most godly speech that we've seen so far in Genesis, constantly talking about the Lord, Yahweh, has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman, And he keeps bowing and thanking the Lord. And, you know, just a very pious man. Um, this is not only showing Rebecca to be kind of like this ideal wife, but also, frankly, the servant being this ideal godly man. And um, she gets, they go home, and who shows up? Who comes out but her brother, Laban, who's kind of functioning as the spokesman for this for the house, now Laban will show up later on in the narrative with Jacob and um will kind of uh be a match for Jacob because Laban's a little bit of a huckster, he wants to get as much material wealth out of people as possible, and that so it's no coincidence that in verse 30, the very first thing that he really does, he runs out to meet this man uh, to, to meet his sister, right. And um, to to see the man who's coming from the spring, and he says, as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, and he went, and behold, he the man was standing by the camels at the spring. Right, so Laban just shows up, and you could just think of like dollar signs in his eyes as he's, and um, you know, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? And Again, it's there's it's not as if like there's nothing innocent at all about that, right? Like, am I just being too hard on Laban? Well, it's just that it matches his character so well later on in the narrative, um, that uh, where it, this is just kind of how Laban is, and so the servant um, insists on on before he even eats on telling the story, and um, he tells it pretty much verbatim, and. Um, and, and what this does think about it, like you could have, the, the narrator could have just been said, and so he told them what happened, but no, he actually goes in and, and writes out the story again, as part of the dialogue, which is the, the narrative, if you, if, if, uh, if you're not accustomed to underlining things that you want to emphasize, this is another way of doing it. And it's like, look how the Lord has prospered the journey. I'm going to tell you again, all these, these, um, uh, these things that are too good to be coincidences, right? Um, <clears throat> so then, marriage is proposed, and uh, Bethuel and Laban um, say, "The thing has come from the Lord; we cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken, as Yahweh has spoken." And um, and so he he gives the, the 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 bride prices, the the gifts to the family. And um, <clears throat> they're ready to leave. And he says to them, send me away to my master. And they actually want are like, hey, let, let you know what? Let's uh, have her stay a little bit, at least 10 days or so. Um, note, this will happen again in the Jacob narratives, uh, where they will come. Somebody who, who belongs in Canaan will come and say, send me away. The very same phrase. And it happens multiple times in this. Shilacheni, send me away. Um, so, and they'll, and then this family headed by Laban says, no, 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 no. Stay with us more. You are blessed of the Lord. We want you here. Okay. And, uh, but without a huge fight, they basically say, well, let Rebecca choose. And Rebecca's like, I'm, 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 I want to go. And so they bless Rebecca and send her on her way. Another really cool thing about, uh, to note about Rebecca is her name sounds almost identical to the Hebrew word for blessing. So, in Hebrew, you say Rebecca Rivka, and blessing is Bereka. So, Rivka, Beraka. In, in all fairness, it's the Ka is more of like a Q. A native he- Hebrew speaker would probably be rolling over right now, so it's like Rivka. Um, but you can see the similarity in the pronunciation. Her name is like blessing, and she goes and and she goes and and in this kind of beautiful scene, Isaac is meditating in the in the fields, meditating perhaps you know reciting these family covenantal promises of God. Uh, meditation in the Bible is um, is always kind of like this uh, you know word centered thing, um, and and she's like, who is this young man and. Uh, she, and, and the servant says, he is my master's son, and this is Isaac, and, and she puts her veil on, and he takes her, brings her into his mother's tent, and uh, they get married, and he loves her. Um, this is, this is um, you know, kind of a very a romantic scene that's going on here. Um, obviously, the arranged marriage thing kind of grates against us, um, and I'm not saying that's always good, but um, it can be good, and, and people who marry that through that way in other cultures um, do find fulfillment in their marriages. Um, uh, I'm not trying to make a case for, for one way or another, you know. Um, but uh, I know sometimes that can be a little difficult when we read the Bible, and it's— um, I guess I would just kind of point out, like, I don't know if our way of um, of doing marriage, given the divorce rates— Uh, Really leads to more fulfillment. Um, Again, I'm not trying to make a case for arranged marriages. All I'm trying to say is that when you come across it in the Bible, it's uh, it's foreign to us, but it shouldn't be something where you know we're we're just like oh look at these primitive idiots. Um, Not at all. So it's actually a beautiful scene. Okay, speaking of beautiful, Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is kind of like the creation. Narrative told from the perspective of the Psalms. So, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Remember, I used that term inclusio the other day with the Sermon of the on the Mount. That is when the same thing is said at the beginning or the end or something similar as kind of like bookends. Well, notice how that phrase bookends this Psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Um, By the way, an excellent citizens song. So go ahead and listen to that after this. But um, you set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of infant of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes um, to still the enemy and the Avenger. Um, And then you have this thing, right, where. Uh, where David gazes up, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So I look at the grandeur of your creation, Lord, and I think like, you care about me. You have regard for me. And here's something that I think is kind of cool. I, I I find myself thinking this a lot when I when I read this in the Bible. So, David looked up at the stars in the sky, right? And what did he think was up there? Now, I am not, unlike uh, some, some uh, unlike some people like to do, I do not have a lot of confidence speculating in what exactly the ancient Israelites thought about the, the makeup of the universe. You know, is there a solid dome over us? Uh, you know, what exactly, you know, um, are there real pillars of the earth? Or are there real windows of heaven? But... I will say that whatever David thought when he looked up, you know, maybe, you know, anything from as simple as these are just these discs that the Lord placed, and it's it's as much as, you know, a hundred feet up or something, um, or uh, I don't think that they really thought that, but um, uh, that, that it was that low. Um, but, you know, whatever it was, he wasn't thinking, you know, uh, billions of light years across. He wasn't thinking images that we see in the Hubble Space Telescope. He wasn't thinking um, black holes and supernova and and these stars that are that are so powerful that that they're they're they, they're these explosions driving them outward. Yet they're so large that their gravity pulls them inward, so they maintain their shape. And 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 there's 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 Hundreds of billions of them in our galaxy alone, and there's hundreds of billions of galaxies in the sky, and God has placed every single one of them and knows them all by name and commands them into existence. So, what the point is, where I'm going with this, is that David made drew these conclusions from what he thought the universe was okay, the stars he could see, the moon, and whatever he thought they were okay, today, because of astronomy and, and all kinds of, uh, sciencing, we know a lot more about it. And we have many fold re many more fold reasons to be, to feel this even more than David did, because we understand more about God's creation than he did, at least more in terms of what it is, what's actually there. Um, so I just think that that's a, that's, that's amazing. Um, and and yet, you know what? Though, though, in this psalm, he does acknowledge um, that mankind is placed as this kind of, like, pinnacle, the image of God, right? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. That, that is um, one of the places where apparently the word for God is used as a, uh, a description of a spiritual being who lives in the divine realm with God—you know, think angels and their like— but uh, probably not God himself. Although it is not impossible to say you made him for a little while, um, you made him lower than, um, sorry, you have made him a little lower than God. Uh, It could be translated by that, but here I think the little lower uh, makes it much more likely that this is one of those places in the Old Testament where God is like a little g- um, you know, uh, you, you get this in some of the other Psalms. We'll get there. We'll see it. Uh, but at but rate, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hand. Notice how Genesis, Genesis, Genesis-y that sounds. You've put all things under his feet, sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens and of the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea all under man's dominion. And and note also this, as I said, this idea of dominion being closely connected with the image of God in Genesis. I think you have that here as well. Okay, uh, let's go to Matthew. Uh, as I said, we're in Matthew 9 today, and um, we've got some... Uh, Jesus is continuing to do signs, and... Um, uh, a bunch of things that are kind of interesting again I think it's very important to see these things as signs right they're they' signs never point to themselves like if um if i if i'm if I'm trying to find a hospital I look for a blue sign with an h on it i'm not looking i'm not gonna like stop there and be like look at this great sign no <laughs> what i want is what the signs pointing me to that's what a sign does it points you to something other than itself okay so um, Jesus is questioned about fasting, and then, um, you know, why do the Pharisees and their disciples fast, but yours don't, and, and even John, right, like, they um, instead, we see you going around with tax collectors and drunkards and people and, and eating, and right, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, look, a drunkard and a glutton. Um, why aren't you guys fasting? Why aren't you? And of course, fasting is something Jesus has already said was good. Sermon on the Mount, right? When you fast, not if you fast. But here, uh, I think it's because of what's going on, because the disciples recognize this phase. And um, and Jesus's answer is is very enigmatic. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patched hairs away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, so both are preserved. Uh, I'll leave it to you to investigate what that is literally talking about, you know, in terms of like why, what's going on with the wine there and everything. And I'll just say it sounds, it seems that what Jesus is saying is look you guys are used to doing things one way but um there's a new sheriff in town <laughs> and you're gonna have to get you you're gonna have to start thinking into in some new categories this is a time for celebrating like you have not known because the kingdom of God is here I think that's essentially what he's saying there uh then he is called by a rich uh ruler and you know this could have it doesn't name him but you know this is somebody of of great importance. He's called a ruler and she, um, and, and her, his daughter has died and they want to, um, they want him to come lay hands on her so that she'll live. And he goes, and as he's going, as he goes, this, remember with the leper, right? An unclean person touching him. Now it's a woman with a discharge for many years, comes up behind him, 12 years and touches him. And Again, like, that's the point of uncleanliness. Like, you're not supposed to touch things, and if you touch them, they become defiled. We'll see that in Leviticus, right? Uh, but Jesus' is Jesus's holiness is such that unclean things do not defile him. He cleanses them. And, um, and when she touches him, she is healed. And he turns and he says, your faith has made you well. And then he goes and he gets there and he finds this, this crowd that is, um, that is at the girl's house, that is at this ruler's house, flute players, you know, this is full on mourning going on. And, and Jesus basically says, all right, everybody, false alarm, pack up your things, go home. She's just sleeping. And they start laughing at him. Like you, you sick idiot, right? Like this is, what are you talking about? This girl is dead. And he goes and he takes her by the hand and she rises up. And anyone listening to this who has a daughter, I've got four of them. I've also got one son. To imagine this happening makes your heart drop. Just what it would be like to see your little girl dead on a bed and a man from Nazareth, from this hillbilly country of Nazareth, right, come and touch her hand, and the the color returns to her, and she sits up and opens her eyes, and it's Jesus. This is an amazing story. Then he goes and he heals two blind men who also acknowledge him to be the son of David. Remember, who's calling him things? The demons call him son of God, right? Um, now. Here are blind men who can't see, but what they can see is that he's the son of David, right? Even blind men. and the blind men receive sight, but they receive sight to see the son of David. Okay? This is um, these are uh, very, very uh, interesting uh, stories here. And, um, and, and just like the woman, notice that it's a, it's connected with faith. To her, he said, your faith has made you well. Here, he says, according to your faith, be it done to you. And then he gives them that messianic secret I mentioned the other day, too. See that no one knows about it. Um, but they don't. They actually go and they spread the fame. So it's kind of like, uh, what are we supposed to make about those guys? Uh, well, probably doesn't matter. It matters what we make about Jesus, right? And then um, he goes and he heals a mute man. And uh, the Pharisees, as a result, can have have no... have want, want no more of it. And he sa- they start saying, because how else are they supposed to explain all this stuff? It said that the word of him raising this girl from the dead spread throughout the district. And so Pharisees, what do you say of this? What are you supposed to say? The only thing that a hard heart can say at this point, he's doing it by the power of Satan. He's doing it by the prince of demons. Um, and to deceive us, to deceive you, to pull you away from... Torah and from, from our teaching and all this stuff, right? Like, what are they supposed to make of this? And they're genuinely grappling with this, uh, with their hard hearts. And then Jesus finally goes and he says, um, if he's going throughout the, the synagogues, he's proclaiming all these places. He's, he's healing diseases and affliction and he sees the crowds and he sees, and he takes pity on them. And he says to his disciples, he says, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's something we still need to be praying today, and I hope you are. Okay, thank you for joining us. Uh, Can't wait to uh, be with you again tomorrow uh, for day 13, but until then, take care. Bye-bye.